a Podcast One production. Back in April, hundreds of thousands of music lovers gathered in the California desert for the Coachella Music Festival. For the last few years, YouTube has been live streaming the event. This year, they went further with a live streaming VR 180 stream. That's a broadcast that you can literally stick your head into and look around as if you're really there, as if you're part of the crowd. Virtual reality has come of age. It's available to millions. But what we saw that April weekend, that's just the beginning of a huge transformation that will replace television over the next billion seconds. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to virtual reality pioneer Tony Parisi about the new world of virtual and augmented realities, a world where it becomes increasingly difficult to detect where reality ends and fantasy begins. Seeing and believing on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Back in 1990, in the middle of my first career, That was when I was a software engineer. I had one employee reporting to me. He was a bright, bushy-tailed young uni graduate named Neil. And Neil was hip in all of the ways the kids are at that age. He was listening to interesting music. He was reading interesting books and magazines. And one of those magazines was called Mondo 2000. Now, it's a bit difficult to explain Mondo. It's kind of like what they say about the Velvet Underground. They only sold a few thousand albums, but everyone who bought one started a band. Well, with Mondo, pretty much everyone who bought an issue either founded a startup in virtual reality often or in publishing. And it's often noted that Wired Magazine, which is still going strong after 25 years, was basically the sanitized, corporate-friendly version of this very wonderfully anarchic Mondo 2000. So Neil, one day, he handed me issue two. Mark, check this thing out. This magazine I just discovered, I think you'll like it. I did. Most interesting to me was an interview with virtual reality pioneer Jaron Lanier and one line in particular. VR, Jaron asserted, wasn't going to be the television of the future. Instead, VR would be the telephone of the future. I remember reading that line. I remember everything going white as suddenly everything in my head clicked. I got it. And within a few months, I'd actually quit my job as a software engineer to found the first company to make VR for the mass market. I want you to think what a PlayStation VR is, but 25 years ahead of that curve. I wanted to make the gadget that would replace the telephone. Now, that never happened, but why? That's a story for another time. But in pretty short order, a hot new technology came along called the web, and the web changed everything. And amid all of that change, people kind of forgot about VR. Even I kind of did. But our guest on this episode, he's one of the few VR pioneers who never lost focus. 
Tony Parisi spent the next 20 years working to bring virtual reality to everyone through a succession of startups and projects and protocols. And the world finally caught up to Tony in 2016 when he got one of the plum jobs in the field. He's the head of virtual and augmented reality at Unity Technologies. They're the folks who make the tools and platform that power about 90% of all virtual reality in the world today. Tony's in exactly the right spot to tell us where we've been and where we're going. Tony, why did VR die and why did VR come back? We don't really have a history of technologies that sort of go away and then come roaring back. VR is pretty much the only example most people can point out. What happened there? I think actually, Mark, there are a couple of technologies we can look at that have been uh, reborn after an apparent death. The other probably famous and notable one would be artificial intelligence, which is a story for another time. But those many years ago when you and I started working together on uh, projects in the, the VR area, AI was another one of those raging technologies that everyone thought was going to you know, replicate the human mind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you were one of the folks that likened uh, AI's sort of rise and fall back then <laughs> to what VR was going through in the mid-90s, right? So you had your consumer startup, and then we came along and worked on 3D for the Internet together shortly after that. And, you know, long story short, it was very early. Um, the ideas we can envision based on the kind of technologies that are breakthrough take a long time to implement sometimes. And in the case of VR, that's definitely true. And while... It did fall off of the radar and, you know, fell out of mind share with the mass population. The fact is that a technology like VR never really died. It just went back into hibernation. It had to develop itself for a lot longer. A lot of technology breakthroughs had to happen to make virtual reality the way it is today viable. A lot of changes in consumer behavior and the way we do business and the infrastructures of technology for communication all had to change and go through a lot of iterations before the conditions that we have now could come into play. And we can let's talk about those and unpack those a little bit maybe. And, and so my understanding is really the modern age of VR kicked off in sort of the middle of 2014, something that Google did. Yeah, so Google introduced Google Cardboard, which is a little cardboard box made of about $2 worth of parts that you could either, if you were a DIY type, put together yourself, or you could buy from people that made them for $2 and sold them to you for $15. It's a box you drop your phone into. It has a couple of lenses, and it gives you a stereo rendering and lets you move your head around and tracks the movements of the phone to give you virtual reality that basically anybody could afford because it used the phone you had in your pocket, and it was a tiny little cheap thing that you could carry around with you. Um, that really came together with the big uh, unveiling of Facebook buying Oculus, the company that was making the high-end VR hardware that connected to a high-end PC originally. And the thing about the Oculus was you could have this great deep experience, and it was so compelling that Mark Zuckerberg made a bet on it, and Facebook purchased Oculus for a lot of money, a couple billion dollars, believing this is an ex-communication medium. And that's fantastic, and those high-end devices are paving the way for the, the, the aspirations of the deep, immersive experiences we can have that are life-changing in VR. But the fact of the matter is, 
Not many people had them in their hands. You had to make a purchase commitment of getting about five hundred dollars worth of peripheral hardware, the headset, maybe some input controllers, and connect them to a PC or a laptop capable enough to render really, really good virtual reality. So that that is ongoing. I hope we come back and talk about where we are with VR hardware at that level. But at the same time, Google was working on these kind of virtual reality technologies, and Google is a company that's all about reaching scale and reaching. Everybody, everybody on the planet, and so some bright minds over there were working on this idea that maybe we can have a simple, much simpler experience and a simple little gizmo that anybody can afford and anybody could have with the phone in their pocket. And so cardboard was a really big breakthrough. You could take this cardboard box and. Give it away at events. You could bring it to schools and give it to students. They put themselves in virtual reality and visit another place, or have a fun interactive experience that teaches them something. And so that was a big breakthrough that illustrated to the world that at some point virtual reality like that could hit scale. That it wasn't only about getting a high-end PC or getting a new PlayStation into your home, but it could be everywhere and it could be affordable. And so, I guess what we see then it's coming from both directions. We have this top-down direction with Oculus making a very high-end product. And I know that when I reinvested in VR in 2016, I had to spend about five thousand dollars to really sort of get everything that I needed for it. So, that, which is a substantial investment. That's essentially a professional investment. And then you have, at the other hand, Google with the cardboard and Samsung with the Gear VR. You have these these things that are similar to it, and they're all well less than a hundred dollars. They all do. In fact, the Samsung Gear VR, when I, the first time I tried it, was the nicest VR experience I'd ever had to that point. You know, it was so you have this capacity to do things very inexpensively, or you can pretty much spend as much money as you want. But it's interesting what you're saying about Google working at scale, because that then ties into what we were just seeing at Coachella this weekend, where Google was not just streaming it over over. YouTube so that people could watch Beyonce and I think a half a million people were watching live stream it set a record on that but you could also then use either a Google Cardboard or an Oculus and stick your head in and actually be in the crowd at Coachella is that something that we're just starting to see happen yeah we are just starting to see that happen and the beauty of a format like 180 degree or 360 video is that folks understand video uh, they don't need to learn how to interact with it other than when it's immersive. You learn to move your head around and look around a little bit more. Um, so if you put a headset on, you can feel like you're immersed in that. But the, the additional beauty is that same content can be viewed on a phone without a headset. You can move your phone around what they call the magic window. And you can look around that entire environment just looking through your phone. So, again, you don't even need even a simple little cheap peripheral, and you don't need to shut yourself off from the outside world if you want to experience this stuff at a Starbucks and you don't want to be wearing a thing on your head. So um, that format is amazing to be able to reach everybody. And, you know, as well as on your desktop where you could just presumably look at it in YouTube and just scroll around that 360 just by, you know, using your mouse. So we've gone from, we've literally gone in four years from VR being completely weird and completely off, off the map and completely rare to something that's just like, oh, yeah, here's some VR, here's some 360 video, here's some 180 video of this amazing live event. And, and people are like, well, it's nice, but it's not strange. Is that what, have we, have we de- Estranged virtual reality over the last four years? Despite some people's best attempts in industry to keep VR weird, I would say that I would say that 
we're on the way to destranging it. And I think there's several factors in play here. One is, again, having the accessibility to run on a range of devices like we just talked about. Another one is, I think, general awareness. The last year to two years, we've seen Samsung and other companies running commercials during a Super Bowl or a you know, big mainstream event on broadcast television going to millions of people where someone's wearing a Gear VR in their head, or not someone, uh, an ostrich, an emu. I can't remember which, which of the birds it was, but I don't know if you've seen this ad, but there's you know, animals wearing the VR and you know, sort of making it familiar and making it mainstream that way. So it's really reached the public consciousness from that sort of mass media standpoint as well. So I think you, know, you bring these things together. Um, you have generations of younger technologists and enthusiasts and just regular folks who are not scared by this. They've grown up with interactive technology. They've grown up with 3D movies, CG movies. Uh, you know, so I think all these things come together. And over the next small number of years, it will be less strange. The hardware has to get less weird. Um, in terms of that deep VR immersive experience where you put a giant, you know, the, effectively the equivalent of a ski mask on your head and you have all these what they'd call haptic controllers so you can have hands interacting with the VR. These are great and what you can do in there is amazing, but from a consumer standpoint, picking up these new kind of devices, putting them on your head, that's all unfamiliar. That continues to be weird. It's getting less weird because the hardware is getting smaller, more comfortable, more understandable, uh, works out of the box like it didn't used to. You know, we've moved from the sort of hobbyist kit versions of these hardware to packaged beautiful things you'll get in a retail store. So all of these kind of things are coming together in parallel to de-strangeify it in the coming few years. Now, I remember, again, in this sort of new era of VR, the first thing that I ever saw this time around that made me think, mm, I think this is, there's something here, was that I watched... And it wasn't a live stream. I think it was it was pre-recorded. But I watched uh, an NBA game from center court, right? And I was sitting there in the chair. And it was again the kind of thing where if you look behind you, so it was the 180. You look behind you, there wasn't anything there. But you didn't want to look behind you because you were at center court at an NBA game. And I realized that for certain types of experiences, and sport being very much one of them, that this had so much more verisimilitude it really had so much more presence that at some point this is going to start to become the way people are going to want to experience the events that they can't be present at physically no doubt no doubt and there's been a few startups in the technology world coming out of silicon valley and other areas southern cal like uh, next vr dedicated to that bringing live events initially sporting um, into VR so that you can feel like you're really there. Uh, another one's called Live Like out of New York. But it's uh, – and Intel now, by the way. Intel uh, has you know, talked about their uh, true VR and what, what you can do there where you can basically experience the sporting event, see it from multiple angles because they're capturing it with multiple 360 cameras. Really amazing. And in Intel's case, you can access that either you know, from a desktop or in a VR headset if, if you have the headset. Um, but the idea is that your live part of the action can control maybe the things you see instead of relying on a cameraman for that. Um, absolutely. I think the live events in particular, sporting and concerts, are a really, really fertile area for this. And we're just seeing the beginning of that over the last two or three years and, and the investments being made there to bring that to life. So is this... 
an either or where you know you think of virtual reality is sort of classically it's the synthetic world where everything's created which is much more sort of out of the tradition of video gaming where it's a synthetic world and you're inside of that or is this much more that it's a version of being able to capture reality and then bring that to the viewer or is it going to be some weird mix of both that we don't see yet d all of the above <laughs> I'm doing this podcast with you looking at a screen, and that screen has video of you, and that screen has interactive windows on it that let me control the podcast audio software we're using to record. And what I'm looking at is a laptop screen. That laptop screen combines live video, interactive elements. It could have graphics on it. Your phone does the same thing. There's no reason to believe VR is not going to do the same thing. You could be capturing and transmitting live events. That's really more of the television model, back to what your, your remarks about television versus telephone. Interactive CG graphics is potentially more of the telephone where you're interacting with the experiences you can publish and communicate. We could potentially be in virtual worlds together, whole other topic. Um, but it really is, at, at its essence, the, the underlying aspect of all of this is it is 3D immersive media as a media type that can contain all of these things and bring you into a worlds that are either real and captured or synthetic or a combination of them. So it's interesting because then when you frame it like that, it's almost as though this was the next logical place for both television and video gaming to go. And they're coming at it again from slightly different angles, but in some sense they're heading in roughly the same direction toward the same goal. Yes, they are. And this is what all our com computer media is doing, right? We have – haven't even mentioned live streaming. We're communicating via live streaming more and more and more. We're connected we're all connected on the planet with all our devices. We are all creators and all publishers. That was the original promise of the web. Remember the first wave of the web? And then the first wave of the web ebbed and sort of, not ebbed, but sort of crested with big publishers and big e-commerce sites and everything coming in before the first, you know, Web 1.0 crash, the, you know, of 1999-2000. And it resurfaced with this notion of Web 2.0 and quote-unquote user-generated content, which is kind of funny and ironic to me because really the principle of the web was about self-publishing and user-generated content. Anyway, it's inherent in the medium. So when we have an inherently connected web, everybody connected regardless of what device they're actually connecting on, and now bringing immersive media as a layer on top of that and being able to experience it through a variety of devices, including new ones that bring you fully immersed in there through VR and AR and mixed reality. Now we're talking about your telephone. We're talking about a global publishing platform. We're talking about a real-time communication medium. These are the best words we have to even describe this. They're only analogies, right? Because where we're going, we haven't been before. We haven't been before. We're talking to Tony Parisi about virtual and augmented reality. You're listening to The Next Billion Seconds, and we'll be right back. And we're back talking to Tony Parisi about virtual and augmented realities. Now, Tony, this term augmented reality, we hear it a lot. What does it actually mean? How is it different from virtual reality? So there are sort of textbook definitions and explorations of what augmented mix virtual reality means, and they get a little bit 
too nuanced and in the reads. So I'm going to try and keep it simple and high level and how, you know, how we could think about distinguishing it relative to virtual reality. So in virtual reality, you put on a headset that effectively closes you off from the outside world and puts you into a completely other place. With augmented reality, what you'll do is potentially put on a pair of glasses or a headset-type device or use something like a smartphone, and we'll get into that in a second, to look at the world around you, but that world around you is enhanced with digital graphics, images, 3D objects, effects that are synthetic, and they're combined seamlessly with the world you're seeing around you. So if you're wearing this headset, you're seeing all that through some kind of display device that is not fully opaque. You can see through it and see the world around you. And this is a device like, say, the Microsoft HoloLens or the Magic Leap or the MetaVision device. On the phone-based augmented reality side, you're using your phone like you'd use your phone with um, Snapchat. You're looking through the mobile phone and you're seeing the world behind you and there are fun graphics being overlaid on top of it. That's AR in a nutshell. When Pokemon Go made such a big drop sort of, what, two years ago, was that, and I could look through the screen of my smartphone and I would see the Pokemon in the parking lot and I'd go and capture it. Is that then also augmented reality? Yes, absolutely. In the broadest definition, again, because you're seeing through your phone, you're seeing what the camera sees, you're seeing the world behind you, and then you have some graphics overlaid on top of it. So yes, in the broadest sense, but there's a lot of hope for augmented reality that goes beyond taking a little, essentially a little graphic, a 2D graphic, and superimposing it on top of the image you see through your camera. And that is with presenting 3D content that you, when you look through your camera, you can not only see it combined with the real world, but you can walk around it. You can see it from all sides. The phone, as it's moving around, is staying in sync with the environment you're seeing around you, so you can actually move around the entire object, and it has a sense of persistence and being there in the space. It can be put on a tabletop or on a floor or stuck on a wall somewhere. So that's sort of the next iteration of what augmented reality can be, and that's already running on the newest generation of phones uh, in both the Apple and Android ecosystems through technologies called ARKit for Apple and ARCore coming from Google. So there's apps that I can grab on the App Store right now if I have a more modern uh, Android phone or a more modern iOS device that will actually do all of this for me? Yes, there are many apps now. Uh, AR, ARKit from Apple came out a little bit earlier. That came out uh, last June. And there are already millions of downloaded you know, millions of downloads of apps. There are many, many apps on the App Store right now. Some have utility, IKEA, Lowe's Furniture, other big retail brands have already created useful augmented reality apps. There's also a lot of entertainment content, you know, branded content like a Transformers game. Uh, and there are simple games like, you know, play basketball in augmented reality where you, you know, look through the camera, you place a basketball hoop, and then you can you know, shoot hoops, but it's in your room. You're seeing it in your room or in your office or wherever you're playing it. Yeah, so there are many of these. Uh, ARCore was released last September uh, for the Google ecosystem, and now we're seeing a lot of those games come online. It was released in a, you know, for developers last September and just came out in February. So we're going to see more and more of those in both ecosystems 
and they run on a lot of different phones. And in the case of um, iOS and Apple, it's the iPhone 6S and up. So it's not like you need to go out and buy the iPhone 10. Though with the iPhone 10, you get all these other wonderful features. It's funny because I have actually played with because I was going to buy a sofa a couple of months ago, and I actually played with this IKEA app that you're talking about. And I was surprised because I downloaded the app and it said, "Okay, point it at your living room," and then it gave me a furniture catalog, and I was able to drag and drop sofas into my room to find out if they would fit. You know, and apparently they're correctly sized. And so I'm looking through the screen of my smartphone and I can see the couch that's not really there. And I can say, hmm, that's not going to quite fit or that's too small or, oh, that's got a really long wait time. And so are we going to start to see this as a generic way of being able to bring, I guess, what we would think of as an electronic catalog to people? Absolutely. We're seeing the first of these apps come out now that do this, but I believe... That's going to be the that is the beginning of a wave we're going to see. We had this era of the web where you would see photographs of things, and if you still go to Amazon or to eBay, you're, you see photographs of things, and that's pretty much how these things work. And now we're seeing this new generation, which seems to be sort of more centered on the smartphone, where we're actually getting these 3D models. Okay, but this now raises another question: If I'm a department store or if I'm a furniture maker, I need to be able to get all of these crazy objects—my chairs and my my lamps and my carpeting—I need to get it into 3D so that I can put it in here so people can drop it into their living rooms on their app. How do I take a device or a thing and scan it? I mean, is that hard to do? It can be hard to do, and it very much depends on the content. So let's talk about scanning and capture. There's actually three majorly different ways to get virtual furniture or other physical products into an environment like that. So let's start with the capture scanning. Uh, so there's a variety of different camera solutions where you can get a high-resolution camera that's got depth sensing and everything combined with it so that you can actually physically scan 3D objects. You have to kind of go all around them to do that. But there are technologies for doing that, and the production technology to do that, the cameras are expensive. This is not a cheap you know, activity. But if you're doing a whole catalog, presumably you've invested in the camera rig once, right? And, then, and it ends up being a, mo- a matter of production time of doing the scanning. And then after you've scanned it, you need to then condition it. You need to you know, shape the models, clean them up. These scans aren't perfect. You need to put them into a form and a format that can be delivered into an online application. So there's all these steps in a production pipeline there. Sounds like it's a little expensive then. I mean, if there's a lot of steps, then there's a lot of human interaction involved. Yes, th- there is. And so so that's one area. And, and people are figuring that out over time. And, and it's one of these things where it's it, because it's bleeding edge, you know, there's going to be pioneers who spend the extra expense. They try a few experiments. They see how it goes. Assuming it goes well, they'll double down and continue and they'll lead the way. But, you know, that's very much, you know, early adopter land right now. A second way a catalog like this can be presented is actually just having a graphical recreation of that object that was created by a 3D artist. And they create it and they make it look as photorealistic as possible. And that's labor intensive, but it's a different kind of labor. And they can control a lot more. They don't have to post-process because they're actually modeling it from scratch, right? So they can control a lot more of that going in. And presumably they're 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 working off of the the blueprints, the design blueprints as well. So they have something they're starting with. Presumably they didn't necessarily get handed a CAD, a computer-aided design model from the manufacturer. Those don't always even exist, right? So often they're just looking at reference imagery and 
just recreating it. And it's just faster. Um, so it, it depends on the circumstance and where you're getting the products from and all that. But here's what's interesting and fascinating. There's a third kind of way, and maybe it's kind of specialty and niche, but certain types of physical products, like, say, furniture for your kitchen, kitchen cabinetry, turns out things like that can be created, uh, what we'd say, parametrically, programmatically, based on a handful of parameters about, oh, it's a wood cabinet, here are the dimensions, and it actually can be created in code. It never has to be physically designed. There's this wonderful startup in the Midwest in the States uh, out of Detroit called Marksent. They use the Unity engine to build their application, and they have a business around creating this parametric furniture that they're delivering to furniture showrooms that they have a whole built a whole business around, a thriving business around this, and they were able to create a lot of that content purely out of program code. So we now actually have the virtual world invading the real world with that. Effectively, yes, but you know the virtual is good enough to show you this is what my kitchen's going to look like. Yeah. I'm going to order that kitchen. But that kitchen... And then it does. Then it becomes the yes. Then it comes into the real world. The kitchen is a piece of maths. It's not a blueprint per se. It's it's a it's a piece of maths. And someone you can render that so that you can see it. But what you're saying is, I'm going to take this piece of maths, this virtual piece of maths, and that is going to be my kitchen. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty cool right there. Okay, so the other thing that I think we'll want to start to see now is what happens when people end up in these scans. And I know right now human beings are kind of hard to scan. If I wanted to capture you or myself in a really good, high-quality 3D representation, how would I do that? There's a few companies who have been pushing on this really well. This is what we call volumetric capture, which captures a human body from the outside. You can capture anything, but it's being used a lot for people. Uh, people that are, and it's video. It can be video or stills, but that way you can capture an entire performance by a person. Um, one company's called 8i out of Southern California. Microsoft, it turns out, for years had a lab uh, at headquarters in Redmond that was a volumetric capture studio. They worked really hard on this process. It's a big room, lots of cameras, very sophisticated software to take all the camera imagery and that video, stitch it together, and turn it into something that can be played back interactively. So I could capture you talking, waving your hands, moving around within a limited area of space, even doing a dance performance in this you know room with green background or some you know monochrome background. And that can be brought into a fairly small uh, 3D animated mesh that you can then put into a Unity game or into a virtual experience. And Microsoft's done some amazing work in that capture. They finally sort of decloaked about it. They had it for years. Then they started showing off the results. And then they've started to open other studios, including one right uh, down the street from us in San Francisco at one of their uh, San Francisco spaces. And so you can go in and get captured to a performance. It could be a lecture. It could be an advertisement. It could be a performance that uh, is for putting extras into films. It's, you know, it's not so great close-up yet. You'd want to do close-up stuff with a virtual person in films that you've, in a film you've captured, but it's, it's getting pretty good. We did a, uh, there was a great project that was done with Unity, a group at Viacom, Isobar, the digital agency, with the Microsoft Capture Studio, which um, captured the musician Billy Corgan, the front man from the Smashing Pumpkins, who's had a solo career now for several years, and they used that capture to capture his performance uh, for the first single on his new record. The single's called Aeronaut, and they captured 
Billy, and they created a VR piece out of him that you could experience in Windows Mixed Reality headsets. And they also made a 2D music video out of it, all using the real-time Unity engine. It was amazing. And they, it's, it's an incredible performance. It's, it looks beautiful. In the VR, you can actually walk all around Billy, watch him play in the piano. It's a ballad. Um, art was done in Tilt Brush, the amazing art creation tool by Danny Bittman, one of the premier artists. That was all the backdrop art. and It was gorgeous, incredible virtual world that was both virtual and then the music video was created out of it. And, you know, this is Billy Corgan. He was one of the people in the Smashing Pumpkins who was pushing MTV, right? I mean, we're talking early 90s. So it's kind of come full circle and he's a big believer in this stuff. So that was fascinating. So now imagine as that technology gets cheaper, faster, as the need to post-process that, which takes production time, goes down, maybe someday that's you and me doing a virtual video conference and we're fully captured and we're broadcasting that in real time. That's several years out, but imagine that. Rather than us using Skype, which is what we're using right now so that you can be in San Francisco and I can be in Sydney, what we're saying is we would still be in San Francisco and Sydney, but we would be seeing each other in full three dimensions and moving around and we'd be able to walk around each other. Exactly. And when someday we have the hologram technology to actually somehow project that or at least see that through uh, some lightweight glasses, then it becomes a realistic setting where we could have a teleconference or we could just be meeting or you could be, you know, uh, talking to your dad and wishing him Merry Christmas and just pop into the room. So does this also mean, I mean, you know, that's that's the telephone side. Let's go back to the television side because we've got these two things going on here, you know, and I now think, okay, if there's a sporting event, let's say there's the Australian Open and I'm watching the tennis final and I get to put myself exactly where I want to be either in the stands or on the court, to be able to do this. Or if I'm watching the AFL grand final, I can put myself anywhere on the field and watch the play from any angle. Is that where this is going? It could be. I just imagined that, and I imagined you plopping your hologram down in the middle of the tennis court and a virtual security person coming and chasing you <laughs> off. You know how a player jumps on the field and security has to come and <laughs> take them away? Um, so that'll be very interesting. I think that will be a few years down the line. But yeah, sure, if these technologies converge and you know, networking supports it and all that, someday, why not? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we, we do take a next billion seconds frame, so that's 30 years. And I think it's easy to imagine that in 30 years, the technology will have evolved enough to be able to capture that. But then, and this is sort of where I want to go at the end, you know, you keep on alluding to these lightweight, and everyone is now starting to talk about something that looks like a basically a pair of sunglasses, maybe like a pair of wayfarers, that are loaded up with technology that have lenses that allow you to see through them and yet at the same time display these holograms in them. Are are these close? Um, you know, if we if we go out, say, five years, do we see them? Do we if we go out 15 years, how far out do we have to go until this kind of sci-fi vision actually starts to become something that people are using? Being that I'm one of these reluctant futurists. Um, I'm okay being wrong 95% of the time. So I don't mind making some guesses here. And I will disclaim right away that I don't track the hardware trends. I'm more of a software and infrastructure person uh, by, by trade, by disposition. I don't track these hardware trends. Uh, I can tell you what Unity's partners or some of my friends in the world of XR would have to say about this and some of the other experts in the field. There is some debate. There's some debate. There's, there's some hope that we could get a lightweight pair of fashionable glasses on your face 
and be able to see that kind of reality within five years. There's others who say that's going to take at least 15 years. We could split the difference and say it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, there are even really debates because some people would think, well, it's all got to fit in your glasses, where other people would say, well, no, probably what will happen is you'll have some glasses, but there'll still be a box, like your phone, connected to it with wires or something, but it's something you could carry in your pocket. Not, you know, you're not lugging around a desktop computer. So if you have that portable setup and those glasses, you know, maybe that these things can happen more quickly that way because then you don't have to figure out how to miniaturize electronics enough to get them into just a pair of glasses. It's really sort of a combination of that hip pocket plus, you know, the glasses and maybe even stuff in the network that's computing it for you so there's less, you know, load on the device you're carrying around. Right. I mean, you think about a smartphone and a smart watch, right? The smartwatch is really kind of using the smartphone to handle all the heavy lifting. And the same thing is true with you if you have Bluetooth earphones, right? The smartphone is doing all of the hard work of figuring out the audio and sending it along. And so it maybe does make sense that if there's something that you're wearing on your face, it's talking to the smartphone because the smartphone's got all the beefy bits to be able to do it. Exactly. And uh, my friend Rickard Stiber from... Uh from uh, HTC, he's the president of Vive America, Viveport. They, they make a wonderful immersive VR device called the HTC Vive. It's one of the best on the market. Similar to Oculus Rift, but different. You connect it to your com- computer, so it's still one of these tethered things, we would say. It's got a wire still, but it's, it's, it's amazing. It's what they call room scale, where you can walk around, and it tracks your position. You can be in this wonderful about 10-foot, uh, 3-meter by 3-meter space, and Rickard likes to say we're talking really if we look a few years into the future about the death and rebirth of the smartphone. That in other words, we're still going to have something resembling a phone that we carry around. We're still going to be making phone calls. We're going to do the things we do, which is nearly everything now, through our mobile device. But the form factor is going to change where some of it's going to go up on your head so you don't have to look down so much and uh, potentially walk into traffic. So you'll have this display up in front of you, but you'll have the brain somewhere else. And it will be connected to this cloud that's crunching this stuff away. So I kind of like that framework. It's like the the phone as a device itself might not be here in a few years, but the compute that goes into that, the companies that make this stuff, you know, with the wearables like Apple, they're going to be around. They're not going anywhere, but it's just that this form factor is going to move around in ways that are going to make our lives that much more seamless with the digital content around us. Tony Parisi, it has been a great honor and a pleasure to tour the future of virtual and augmented reality with you. Thank you for being on The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you, Mark. All the way back, 27 years ago, Jaron Lanier predicted a future where virtual reality had replaced not the television, but the telephone. Where we stand now, in the age of both smartphones and soon augmented reality spectacles, we can see that the future isn't about either ors. The next billion seconds look like a series of both ands, both virtual reality and augmented reality, both smartphone and spectacles, both synthetic and real, both telephone and television. It may not be the future we were expecting, but in that diversity, it's even better. We'll be linking to Tony Parisi's details, including that amazing Billy Corrigan video that he talked about and Beyonce's live stream performance at Coachella. All of that is going to be on our website at nextbillionseconds.com, so please do drop by. 
has our conversation gotten you to thinking about virtual reality and augmented reality and how we can trust what we see in the future? If so, we would like to hear from you. Drop by that website. Drop by our LinkedIn page. Send us a message on Twitter. Tell us what you want to know about the future. Ask your questions about the future, and we will do our best to answer them in a future episode. Over the next two episodes, we're going to take a little different tack. We're going to take what we've learned so far in the second series about truth and lies, about politics, about belief, about augmented reality, and we're going to explore them through a sort of documentary that shows how all of them are coming together to create what I'm calling the last days of reality. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kurt Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.